ECHO-1, the satellite primarily launched into orbit for purposes of communication, is serving another important purpose for science. Its frequent, punctual reappearance have generated a greater public interest in objects celestial, according to a report from the Moorhead Planetarium here, where a section of the current program is being devoted to a demonstration of the satellite. In terms of popular appeal, A.F. Genzano, director of the planetarium, evaluates the cycling ECHO-1 as a, quote, 10-story astrophysical generator of public scientific interest and enthusiasm, unquote. Contrasting the satellite man into space challenge confronting us as a country, Genzano stated that with each crossing, ECHO-1 has become, to many, a personal challenge of perceptiveness, interest, and sense of participation. We accept this challenge by nature of being human, and in so doing, we answer the question that human nature later impels us to ask ourselves. Why do we desire to repeatedly watch a satellite? Not too long ago, Genzano observed, an unfamiliar object in the sky might easily go unnoticed or unrecognized. Even the earlier satellites did not stimulate enough public interest to encourage the masses to quote-unquote look skyward and to recognize the prominent stars and the constellations they form. Genzato submitted that Echo 1 has generated this enhanced condition, and subsequent echoes should maintain and develop it. Genzano concluded, quote, Each new echo crossing should compound our pride as Americans and contribute to our scientific enlightenment as individuals. And each shiny echo satellite should continue to tacitly reflect and disseminate these features along with each audible communication signal, unquote. Echo 1 may soon disappear from our nighttime sky because its orbit will pass through the Earth's shadow for about two weeks. Whether or not it resto- restores to present the conditions of visibility does not subtract from the great scientific success it has been, popular, professional, and promising. So that passage is taken from a newspaper article titled, Genzano Says Satellite Echo 1 Has Generated Much Interest in Heavens, from Chapel Hill Weekly, the September 1st, 1960 issue. So I'd like to welcome you back to Warming Up to the Cold War, the podcast that explores some of the most colorful stories from the Cold War era. My name is Shelby Riedel, and I'm excited to tell you more about the Echo Project and what I've been termed satellites. So this is a lesser known chapter of the space race, and we'll talk about why later. But the reason I came across this story and wanted to share it was I learned about it during my internship at the Northfield Historical Society in 2018. So I'll read a blog post that I wrote that year. My primary project was to create a finding aid for the Sheldahl Inc. collection which consisted of business records, photographs, product samples, advertising materials, and an assortment of unique objects. One of the main challenges was compiling the records from four donations to form a cohesive narrative of the business and its role in the Northfield community. By the end of the summer, I was able to write a timeline of key events in the company's history that helped place the archives in their historical context. The most fascinating aspect of the collection was a contract work Sheldahl Inc., formerly known as Sheldahl Company, did for the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or NASA. Sheldahl Inc. was known for its work in plastics, and was thus asked to fabricate the Echo-1 and 2 satellites, 
or spherical balloons that functioned as satellites. Sheldahl also created the heat shields for Apollo 11's command module, bioshield and parachute of Viking 1 and 2, among other projects. External research was extremely beneficial to understanding the technical language used in describing these projects as well as what was being depicted in unlabeled photographs. When writing the copyright section of the Finding Aid, I learned that all materials created for or by federal agencies are considered to be part of the public domain, which applies to a large part of Sheldahl Inc. collection. So, in addition to the contract work that I mentioned, um, notably Apollo 11 and then the unmanned spacecraft Viking 1 and 2 that went to Mars, Sheldahl also made meteoroid detector panels for a Pegasus satellite, thermal control materials for an emergency Skylab repair, and a few other projects. However, once Sheldahl was bought by Maltech, a multinational corporation, they were no longer eligible to do contract work for NASA. Unfortunately, that chapter is just in the past. But in looking through all of these materials, what I remember about the section on Echo is that they had press releases because in addition to it being one of the first satellites of its kind and being a big boost for NASA, it also brought a lot of credibility and good publicity to their business and what they were doing because as I talked about in that blog post, they were very good at working with plastics. And so to have, and especially once Echo, Echo 1 and 2 proved to be successful, it really generated interest in this company and brought a lot of pride to the area as well. So looking at the conditions of the space race and why Echo would have been so exciting at the time, first we have to look at the USSR's early lead in the space race, notably the satellite Sputnik that launched in 1957. Shortly after this, there was a satellite called Explore 1 that was launched in January of 1958, and then NASA as a government agency was founded in July of 1958. And so NASA was really eager to get some of these first that the Soviet Union already had a lead on. So in 1960, they launched three different kinds of satellites in order to kind of boost their space program. So they had the first navigation satellite, the first weather satellite, and then the first communication satellite, which was ECHO. And so the newspaper article mentions that people were, you know, more eager and more invested in the quest to get a man into space. But at this point, JFK had not promised to land a man on the moon. That would be in May of 1961. So not quite a concern, but it would come up shortly after. So ECHO-1, one of NASA's first projects, and it was a passive satellite, so that meant that once it received signals, it would just bounce them back to Earth. It wouldn't modify or amplify them. And this was made of aluminized mylar. And mylar was a pretty novel material because it was invented in the early 1950s. And as Eric Seedhouse mentions in Bigelow Airspace on page 21, its use in the ECHO project was just the first of many firsts in the space industry, with variants being used in space blankets and as linings in spacesuits. So that's just interesting that in addition to it being one of the first satellites of its kind, and you know where we are today, where satellites are involved in telecommunications, and 
we rely on them a lot for communication. Then we also have mylar being proved as a very good material for space, which is very cool. And so the aluminum surface on this mylar meant that Echo could act as a mirror somewhat. So yeah, again, just reflecting these signals back to Earth. Uh, it did have two FM transmitters on it. And so if you see pictures of Echo 1, then you'll notice that there's two white spots on either side of it. And so then those are the transmitters. Unfortunately, Echo was off to a rough start. It's first launch in May of 1960 failed because the Delta rockets that were going to propel it up into orbit, they failed. And so they had to try again in August of that year. And so how it worked was it was the balloon was compressed, it was deflated and compressed into a capsule. And then once it reached orbit, then it inflated. However, it did not inflate to its full spherical form as you would see in some of these hangar pictures because the atmosphere outside so in space was much different than what you would see you know close to ground level and so once it was all set up and ready to go the first message it received and sent back was a pre-recorded message from president eisenhower which said it is a great personal satisfaction to participate in this first experiment in communications. This is one more significant step in the United States program. The satellite balloon, which has reflected these words, may be used freely by any nation for similar exper experiments. And so this was quoted in Alexis C. Madrigal's article in The Atlantic. And so what's interesting about what this statement mentions is that any other country is able to interact with it. And so they could send up signals to Echo and receive them just to kind of understand how these satellite, you know, these communication satellites would work. And additionally, the U.S. shared the technology of how to build the satellite and what exactly it was doing with other countries. It's speculated that even Russia was somewhat in the know, especially with towards the launch of Echo 2, which is very interesting. And so going back to this being like such a source of pride for Sheldahl and the Northfield community, school children were encouraged to write to Sheldahl and just say that they were excited, they were interested in seeing the Satalloon once it was orbiting. Then they would receive small squares of this aluminized mylar. So that was pretty neat. And so I got to touch some of these squares, which, yeah, very shiny. And as other people have noted, which I believe it was noted in the PBS History Detectives, was just how thin it is. <laughs> because it's just like paper thin. It's thinner than a deflated balloon. It's just crazy how thin it was, but if you look at pictures, it looks very sturdy, just able to withstand a lot. So that's really credit to the developers of Mylar for creating that. Um, it was was difficult to tear, and they so they ha they had many of these squares and adhered them together in order to make the spherical shape. And they used shell bond as the adhesive, so that was a product that was developed 
by Sheldahl. And so it was ex- Echo 1 was expected to descend back to Earth in 1963 or 1964. However, it stayed until 1968. So it was in space for nearly eight years until it re-entered and then burned up. So that was very cool and very exciting that not only was Echo 1 successful, but it actually surpassed expectations. And so one of the impacts of it staying in space so long was that it was able to test satellite triangulation because Echo 2 was launched in 1964, so they were in space for an overlapping period of time. So with Echo 2, they improved the design. The main thing that changed was that they added internalized pressure so that would maintain its shape in orbit. So Echo 2 would actually look like a sphere, whereas Echo 1 kind of looked like a raisin. Echo 2 didn't remain in space for quite as long as Echo 1. It was in there from 1964 to 1969, and when it re-entered the atmosphere and also burned up. But some of the other impacts from the Echo project as a whole was that the U.S. military was able to gain an accurate location of Moscow, which is very important because in the event that a nuclear war would break out, they wanted to be able to precisely aim the missiles at Moscow and know exactly where they were going. So that was an important contribution. Additionally, Echo 2 did some more scientific observations. So it studied the dynamics of large spacecraft and global geometric geodesy. And geodesy is the study of the shape of the Earth, the orientation of the Earth on its axis, and then the gravitational field and how that affects the Earth. And so after the ECHO project, NASA moved on to focusing on active satellites, which is what we have today, where they amplify the signal, the signal is much clearer. But the ECHO project was significant because the ground station and then the tracking technologies would be used for later satellites. So it wasn't like starting from scratch. They were just able to figure out what worked with ECHO and how they could make it work for a different type of satellite. ECHO is interesting because for all of its contributions with satellites and how excited people were at the time, even when there was one or two ECHOs in space for nine years, people were still excited about it in newspapers. They printed forecasts of when ECHO would be visible from the ground, and because it was so shiny and reflective, then it was pretty easy to see. Which is funny because with Echo 1, I I believe they mentioned this in the newspaper article, when it was visible, was overlapped with when you could see Saturn, and which was which, but both of them were pretty visible from the ground and got people excited about it. And even in the article, they they note that it wasn't just that people were like, wow, a satellite is so cool. They had other satellites before. And Echo was the one that got the most attention. It was a first of its kind, but it wasn't the first satellite ever. And so it's interesting just how much interest it generated. So is it because it's a satellite? Is 
just kind of novel in that way? Or what, what exactly is it that made it so compelling as, as it repeatedly orbited? So I thought that was very interesting. It's fun to look back at the space race and the competition with the Soviet Union that has gone away as the Soviet Union collapsed. But just the interest in NASA and its missions had already waned in the 1980s. If you've seen the Netflix documentary Challenger The Last Flight, they talk about how once the space shuttle program got started, then there was this purposeful misperception for the public where they thought this is just like commercial airlines, like it's super safe consistent NASA knows exactly what they're doing and so when you have that kind of confidence like no one's interested in watching airplanes land at the airport because it's just so mundane it's so routine that no nothing exciting is going to happen so why bother watching it however with NASA that wasn't a correct assumption to make as the some of the disasters such as the Challenger in 1986 and the Columbia in, I want to say 2003, demonstrated that no, these are experimental vehicles. They, you know, they're learning about how space flight works, how these specific vehicles work in space. Nothing is assured. It's just hard to believe that space has lost some, so much of its appeal, which I think now it's less interest in NASA, but there is quite a bit of excitement about SpaceX and some of these private companies that are offering, you know, trips to private citizens. It's not exclusive to people who've done astronaut training or are engineers, you know, somewhere in the scientific community. You can just, if you have enough money, you can buy a ticket and go. There, there might be something there about the access of it, where if you're just watching other people that you feel disconnected from, then there's less involvement of it, but if there's some connection to the local, like with Sheldon being the one that manufactured the balloon and the people in Minnesota feeling invested, like this is part of our community pride, so we have to watch it. Or just, this is something that like the working class made. You just had to be hired by Sheldon and work in a specific department in order to help work on it. You didn't have to have any special training or any knowledge about space in order to help with it. And I think with North Carolina too, because there were other, other articles from the Chapel Hill Weekly, I think the hangar for, that they used for Echo was in North Carolina, so maybe that was their connection to it, where part of the production of it was close by. That means there, yeah, there just has to be some vested interest in the space missions in order for people to pay attention. But even NASA is very aware that how much public interest has shifted throughout the years. And so in the Challenger, the last flight documentary, one of the people they interview talks about how which page of the newspaper the story is printed on. So whether it's the front page or page three or page 17 that it ends up on that's a pretty good indication of how interested the public is in it just remember that what nasa is doing even if 
you know, the private sector is becoming more dominant in spacecraft. Even with them, this is new territory. This is not like fly, flying planes or anything. This is very experimental. And so I think we should try to keep some of that awe and wonder that people in 1960 had. Because it is really remarkable that they're able to do what they do and be able to communicate with the people who are in space and send back pictures and video. All of that is very remarkable, and to have the success that they have, we can't just take that for granted. So thanks for joining me and learning somewhere about ECHO and some of my background and the internships I've done. Um, if you'd like to hear more about the other places I've entered at, please let me know. The podcast host is Anchor, so if you go to my Anchor site for warming up to the Cold War, then there's links to all of the RSS and all of the other podcasting sites that have my podcast on it. If you'd like to email with feedback or any ideas you have for future episodes, you can email at warminguppod at gmail and just let me know your thoughts if you just want to talk more about what I've covered in a podcast or want me to look at an article you found, whatever, you can send it my way and I'll check it out. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, the podcast handle is warmingcoldwar. Altogether, no spaces or punctuation in there. And then my Twitter is Riedel Shelby, so that's R-E-I-D-L-E-S-H-E-L-B-Y. With Anchor kind of getting my podcast out to different platforms, there are different listening platforms, so if you listen to one last time that isn't your favorite, hopefully the one that you do prefers up there now. And if any of those sites have options where you can rate and re review, I'd love to get your feedback. I'm just starting out, so let me know if you like the format, what I talk about, if I should expand my geographic coverage, which I'm trying to do, and, you know, kind of cover different decades and aspects of the Cold War. But yeah, let me know if you think I'm missing something. I hope to have guests intermittently, so watch out for those. And then I'll have my show notes up again this time, so if you want to learn more or see the pictures, which I think in this case is especially helpful, then you can go and click on those links and check it out yourself. Thanks again for tuning in and have a great week.